Our New Testament reading comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, verses 1 through 12. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the ages to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. And though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and the serving of the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is the word of the Lord. And good morning to everyone. Um, We are continuing in our study of Hebrews. It's been a great blessing to, to be studying this book and to... Here, the preachers we've had preaching through it. I look forward to Dave's sermon next week. Enjoyed Sam's last week. Um, and we're building off of that for this week as we get into chapter 6. We're going to overlap a few verses, and I'll probably overlap a few of your verses too, Dave, but that's just how it goes. Uh, that's, there you go. That's, <laughs> it kind of works that way. Yeah, they're, they're connected. Um, but over this week, as I was, as I was uh, studying... Well, I'll tell you what, let me pray before we get started. I'm not used to reading the scripture and then starting right into the sermon. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the blessing that it provides for us. Thank you for the life that it gives us. I thank you that you have called us to proclaim it, to hear it, and that it has the power to shape us, to judge us, and to give us new life. Thank you for the living word, Jesus Christ, our prophet, priest, and king. And Lord, may you be working in us today through my words. Let them be your words. And Lord, shape our hearts and draw us to you and give us feet that are steadfast upon your foundation. The only foundation that we have. The only life. It's Christ's name we pray. Amen. So as I was uh, looking through and studying, preparing for the sermon this week, I was spending some time also in, in C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. And I was struck right in the beginning at the, pre- at the preface of his book. He says this. He's, he's talking about a, a writer named, um, uh, I didn't write Blake, I think. 
What's that? Blake. William Blake. Yeah. So he wrote, he wrote a book, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. And he was, he was responding to this. And he says, we are not living in a world, Lewis says this, we are not living in a world where all roads finally meet at the center. Rather, we're living in a world where every road, after a few miles, forks into two. And each of those into two again. And at each fork, you must make a decision. Even on the biological level, life is not like a pool, but like a tree. It does not move towards unity, but away from it. And the creatures grow further apart as they increase in perfection or in maturity. Good, as it ripens, becomes continually more different, not only from evil, but from other good. Then he goes on to say in the preface, If we insist on keeping hell, or even earth, we shall not see heaven. If we accept heaven, we shall not be able to retain even the smallest and most intimate souvenirs of hell. He's saying these two cannot coexist. Heaven and hell, good and evil, light and darkness cannot coexist. There is a difference. There's a distinction, a sharp distinction. And not only that, life itself is not stagnant. And I'll add to that, neither are relationships They're not stagnant. There's a constant growth. That a relationship is either growing stronger or it's growing weaker. And life is the same way. Although as we get older, we're we're declining as it goes, I guess so, yeah. (laughs) But at the same time, there's a constant motion in this growth. There's a maturity, but that process of maturity involves roads in which are, are continually presenting us with choices and consequences. And such is the road to maturity. The Hebrews, you see, they were off to a good start. The writer talks to them about the days gone by when they accepted the plundering of their property when they were once enlightened. We'll look at that a little bit in chapter 10. We've looked at that before. But as Sam said last week, they were becoming dull of hearing. They were uh, sluggish is another word for that. Nothros is the, is the Greek word, and, and I'm saying that because I'm gonna, we're going to land on that word again at the end of this passage today. But they were dealing with the pains and the choices of growing in Christ. See, the Christianity they started with doesn't look or feel the same as it did in the early days. It's become more challenging. In fact, it's probably become more complex, as life does. It's introduced greater obstacles more temptations to lead them away from Christ, from their sure foundation. Perhaps some were tempted in new ways to turn away from Christ, to find another road, to not take this fork or that one, but to go a different way. The author throughout this time has also weaved in these warnings. Chapter 2, be careful not to drift away. Chapter 3, don't allow the deceitfulness of sin to harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the wilderness. All these are being, are, are being uh, uh, put throughout the letter. So we're starting at verse 1 today because it's just going to kind of lead us into uh, 4. 4 kind of is a little abrupt the way it starts. So I think we're going to start with verse 1 here. As he says, therefore, let us leave. And, and just to kind of recap on this. What he's saying is, let us leave, as he's talking about the mature and the basics, he's saying, let us leave, I like the way one, one uh, commentary puts it here, let us leave standing 
the elementary doctrine of Christ. Because it sounds like let us leave it behind, but really let us leave it standing and move on. Not laying again a foundation of repentance because that's been laid. We have a good foundation, a good solid foundation. We have the basics that have been given to us. Let's leave those behind and now let's begin growing. Let's move forward is what he is saying. And verse 3 is, and this we will do. This we will grow, or grow we will do, if God permits. It's the same way as saying, we'll mature, we'll move on to maturity if, if the Lord wills. And that is what he is asking, is what he's calling us to do. Let's grow, and, let's grow uh, forward. Growing up, though, as all of us know, is difficult. We make bad decisions. We suffer. We hurt people. People hurt us. Another fork in the road, another choice, sometimes another victory, sometimes another consequence. But we experience, all of us, as we grow, we experience the joys, the pains, the loss of what it means to grow into maturity, to grow from where we are. And the author of Hebrews knows this well. As many of his words, as as he has warnings peppered in there, he's also giving words of encouragement and words of comfort throughout to his hurting church. He's encouraging, encouraging them to a cautious maturity. This cautious maturity is to be careful as you grow, to be aware of what's going on. The cautious maturity that warns them of the realities of their growth, but also encourages them with the rewards. He's going to look at the realities, or I'm sorry, the, the, the realities of their growth, but also the rewards that come from steadfast growth. So we start off with, with verse 4 in chapter 1. And we see this. As he says, let's keep growing now, Lord willing. He starts off with this, which doesn't sound very encouraging. For it's impossible... In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, what more can you ask for? When you think about all of these things that he's saying that, that, that one has received, <clears throat> tasted of the heavenly gift, experienced Christ, experienced the, the blessing of forgiveness, that they have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, shared in the Holy Spirit, become a participant in the Holy Spirit, part of the Holy Spirit, sharing in the blessing of salvation through the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, knowing that eternity is before us, that eternal life is something we have in Christ, the power of the word, the, the living word that is able to separate joints and marrow, that's able to, to, to cut us open and to bear our, our souls before the Lord, but also to, to announce the forgiveness and the redemption that we have in that living word. To the one who has experienced all of these blessings, what does he say? That they've fallen away that it's impossible to restore them again to repentance. So looking at the first reality here, that there's a risk of falling. What we see here and throughout Scripture is this warning of falling away or apostasy. 
There is a, there is a Greek word for apostasy. This one's a little bit different. This, this, this word is, is, uh, uh, is, there are a lot of words in Hebrews that are only used once in the New Testament. It's, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty interesting. So that's why a lot of times when people are trying to guess who wrote Hebrews, you know, a lot of times, you know, when they're saying Paul did or some, like, the language and the words just don't line up with, with Paul's other writings. So that's, uh, that's sometimes why you hear those, those debates going on. Um, but this, sometimes this word can refer to a mistake or just a, a, a slipping kind of, of action. But in this case, it seems to mean apostasy, falling away, moving away from, from, from where you were. But it's very much a reality in the church, isn't it? How many people have you known in your lifetime? Maybe somebody who is a, a family member or a friend, perhaps somebody you led to Christ. You labored over them, you prayed for them, you loved and cared for them, and yet were heartbroken when you learned that they rejected everything. Or perhaps it's a, it's a child of yours, or a spouse, or a parent. That you saw the joy in their heart. You saw all the blessings of salvation that were just pouring down on them. And they were so zealous to go out and share the gospel. They were so zealous to talk to you about the gospel. Perhaps you felt like that. Remember, you remember that when you, when you first became a believer, how exciting it was. And you get to see that, that childlike faith in a new adult or a new child believer. And how exciting that is. But then how devastating it is when we see them turn away and hear that they no longer believe, that they no longer accept the gospel that they were so zealously proclaiming months ago, years ago. It's not only common in in our lives and in the church, it was common in, in the, well, it wasn't common, but it was happening in Scripture as well, and there are accounts of that in Scripture. Some of them are, are of a temporary falling away, like Peter's. Peter, who in, in Jesus' darkest hour rejects him publicly. I never knew him. Cursing and going away weeping bitterly because he knew what he did. It's, of course, Judas. We don't even know what Judas' status was in Christ, but he was part of the Twelve. And yet Jesus said it was better, it would be better if he hadn't been born. The Old Testament, you have Saul, King Saul. And King Saul, God told Samuel to not even pray for Saul anymore. He's cut him off. There's Simon the magician in, in Acts 8 who, who received Christ, was baptized, and then started trying to see what kind of money he can gain from the gospel. And Peter looked at him and said, your heart's not right. Then he led him to repentance. He said, pray for me that I may repent. There's, there's a list of them throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, of falling away. It is a reality of our faith. It's a reality of our life in Christ that there are those who will fall away. And it's a sobering reality because it's something we have to take upon ourselves as well. He's telling the Hebrews, you can fall away. Be careful. The deceitfulness of sins he talks about in chapter 3. He talks about drifting away in chapter 2. Be careful. Stand strong. Because it can happen to you.
Then what he says, another reality here, the most sobering one is the very first word of verse 4. That Greek word is adunatos. So dunamis is, is, a, is a very common Greek word you might hear preachers talk about because it's the word that, that from where we get dynamite. It's the word of power. And so putting that, that alpha in there, adunatos, is not powerful. It's impossible. It's the word for impossible. And what he's saying here is it's impossible for those who have been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gifts and shared in the Holy Spirit and the word of God and the power of the ages to come, after they've fallen away, it's impossible to what? To restore them to repentance. Now that's a lot more sobering just than, than knowing that there's the possibility of falling away. And it also seems to go against the grace of God, doesn't it? It seems to go against mercy and, and, and the gospel of what we understand, the gospel. When Paul says in, in Galatians 6, when somebody falls into sin, brothers, gently restore him. Gently restore her. Always this hope of restoration. Even the guy who was, who was sleeping with his mother-in-law. Paul cut him off from the community but with the hope of restoration, perhaps. Never saying he's gone for good, but always a hope of restoration. And here, the writer of Hebrews says, it's impossible. So now, when you're studying Scripture, one of the things you want to do is, is well, what about that word impossible? Can it be translated a different way? Is it, is it maybe just being a little liberal with this translation? So if we look at the, the areas where, where else this word is used by the writer of Hebrews, um, just to see how, how firm it is, we'll look at that. There's three other places in Hebrews. Excuse me. The first one is, is in a few verses later in, in chapter 6. It's in verse 18. He says, it's impossible for God to lie. I'm not arguing with that. I'm thankful for that. And there is no commentator that's out there arguing about that. There's no debate about that. Chapter 10, verse 4. The writer says, It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Got me there too. No argument there. 11.6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Those three other uses of adunatas in Hebrews, right there. No arguments, no confusion. We all agree with that. But this one's tough, isn't it? To say that it's impossible to renew somebody after they've fallen away. What exactly is impossible? Well, it's impossible to restore the one who has tasted all these benefits of Christ... And then rejected them. It's impossible to restore them. So we got impossible. It's, it's understood that impossible is exactly what it means. It's impossible. So what is meant by falling away? Maybe we can look at that and see what's happening there. Now, there are different views here, and this is where, where commentators will get into, into debates about what it actually means by falling away. Now, if you grew up 
as I did in, in uh, well, I grew up Catholic, but then after I became a Christian, I was at the Nazarene Church. And the belief there in the Wesleyan tradition or um, uh, theologically in the Arminianist camp, uh, you, they, they believe that you can lose your salvation, that you are in Christ. And once you're in Christ, if you reject him, you can lose your salvation. Some even, even more like, um, like it's very easy to lose it. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll proclaim. Um, and some will say that that's exactly what's happening here. That after they've been saved and they rejected, of course they lost their salvation. But the only problem there is what? It's impossible to restore them then. Are you saying that, and, and, and the Wesleyans don't teach that. I mean, there, there's, there's people going to the altar, you know, some people have gone many times to the altar, being re-saved. Uh, there's there's re-baptisms in the in the Baptist church. You know, people being baptized again, people being saved again. So it really doesn't isn't even consistent with that. Some say that it is hypothetical, that it's really not possible. But this is just the author of Hebrews putting out a, hype, a hypothetical situation that if by chance after somebody tasted the gifts of salvation and, and were in Christ and shared in the Holy Spirit, and then if by chance they fell away, it'd be impossible. But we know that's not going to happen. Um, that's not a very good argument. Because why would he be warning them of something that is not possible to happen? It seems like a waste of ink. And no, no, none of the commentators I read really feel that that's a very solid argument to have for this. However, it does seem very possible that this is something that happens where, think about how this began, talking about the elementary things of Christ, the foundation on which the Hebrews stood. He said, let's leave those behind, let's leave those standing and move on to maturity. Perhaps it's impossible to experience the blessings of, and the benefits of Christ and reject them because it's evidence of an impenetrable heart. You know, we just read the parable of the sower, where seed fell on rocky soil, sprung up, enjoyed the benefits, and then burned up. There is the possibility that such a hardness of heart can't happen. There is that possibility that this is where God is saying, as Jesus talked about the fig tree in Luke 13, when he said, when the, when the landowner said he wants to cut down the fig tree that was producing no fruit, and the gardener said, let me just give me one more year. Let me spread manure around it and fertilize it and care for it. And then let's see what happens. And then what happened? Produced no fruit. And the landowner said, take it down. Cut it down. It's very possible that that is, what, that that is what's being said there. That there is a place where the, where the gospel does not take root in the heart of the hearer. That the blessings have come to the, to, the, to the hearer, that the blessings have brought joy and excitement, but never took root. 
But there's also another possibility. That this is an absolute rejection of the foundation that Christ had laid. There's a clue to this. As we go in, as we, as we continue on in verse 6 here, we see this. We see, um, as I'm sorry, let me, let me go back to, to verse 5. Um, to, to restore them again to repentance. And then the rest of verse 6 says, did I lose my place here? Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So you see, this is not just a falling away and just having some sin happen or falling into a pattern of sin. There's something more extreme going on here. There's something more rebellious happening here. That the writer says it's impossible since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm. The ones who crucified the Son of God to their own harm were the ones who did not believe in Him and put Him up on the cross and hung Him in shame to die there. Holding Him up to contempt. Holding Him up to be shamed to the public. Think about it. If you reject Christ... If you reject everything that Christ has done, if you reject that resur- or that crucifixion, the spilling of his blood, which was the only blood because the blood of bulls and goats cannot atone for sin, it is only the blood of Christ. If you reject that, then you are just seeing him up on the cross for nothing. And the only thing that results out of that is shame. And your own harm. One commentator, Greg, Craig Coaster, puts it this way. They are, another way to say this is they are putting to death their relationship with Christ. They're crucifying their own relationship with Christ. So you see, this is not just a ignoring Jesus. There is something very intentional here about what this apostate or what this person falling away is doing here. We have another glimpse of this in chapter 10. Chapter 10, he says this, for if we go on, and by the way, he uses the term, the same term enlightened, back in, uh, in 32 when he talks about their former days, he uses this same verb, recall the former days when you were enlightened, you endured the hard struggle and sufferings. And he's comparing this person falling away, saying the one who has been enlightened and then falls away. That's just something to note there. But he goes in verse 26 of chapter 10, he says this, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. If you have no longer decided to rely on the blood of Jesus, there's nothing else. There's nothing else but, verse 27, a fearful expectation of of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God 
and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. If Jesus spilled his blood for nothing, you're just trampling it over foot, uh, underfoot. If he made the sacrifice, he said, this is my blood for the forgiveness of sins. It is the only blood for the forgiveness of sins. And if you reject that blood, if you reject that sacrifice, you are trampling the Son of God underfoot and profaning the covenant, profaning his blood, which was shed for you and for all who would receive him. So you see, this isn't someone who is looking for restoration through Christ. It's someone who has rejected the only way of salvation. It's also likely, as the commentators remind us, that they're turning back to the old sacrifices. They're turning back to the old ways. The ways of Judaism, the the, the blood of bulls and goats, perhaps. Not relying on the great high priest, but only on the shadow of the things pointing to the great high priest. That's possible that that's what they were falling back upon and rejecting the one who died for them. The thing is here, I think what, what makes this, this, Dave and I were talking a little bit earlier, and I've talked to a lot of people about this this week, because what makes this, um, this passage so difficult is that I think a lot of times we want to know, so were they really saved and they fell away? Or were they not saved and just kind of, what, what is it? And I'm going to try to remember what Dave told me earlier, because we were just talking about this. What Spurgeon said was, you know, to, to, to the Wesleyans, you know, you believe that, that he's, he lost his salvation. And to the Reformers, you believe that he never had his salvation. The bottom line is, he needs salvation, go get him. <laughs> I love that. Because that's, that's really what it comes down to for us. I don't think it's, it's up to me to figure out if the person in, in my family who has just fallen or my friend or whatever, where they were before all of this. They were to go get them and to share the love of Christ with them. Now, I like that the, the writer also gives us a little more insight into what's going on here and, and relates this really to the parable of the sower in verse 7 and 8. He says, For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. So the rain, the fertilizer, everything that's fallen on the land, when it produces a crop, they receive a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. The blessings of God are falling on the same land. What is the land going to produce? The seed fell on all the soil. What's it going to produce? He's saying these ones that have rejected Christ, the blessings were falling upon them, but it only bore thorns and thistles. It's worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Perhaps same blessing, different heart. 
but our call, brothers and sisters. Our call here is to stand fast on the foundation that has been given through the sacrifice of Christ. It's a call to be careful. It's a call that in our walk with Christ that we are being careful not to stray. Today, if we hear his voice, let us not harden our hearts as they did in the wilderness in Meribah. It's a call to hear his voice and to respond. It's a call in the midst of the storms, in the midst of the raging rivers and the raging waters to hear his call and to stand fast and to hear him and to hold on to him. Because outside of that foundation, there is nothing. If I could say one thing that I, that I can be certain about with this passage, outside the foundation of Christ, it is impossible to be saved. It is impossible without Christ. Now, after all this harsh reality, he gives an encouraging glimpse into the rewards of growing on to maturity. And now he speaks, he's not speaking in third person anymore, now he speaks directly to them. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. I have confidence. I have confidence that you're holding on. Things that belong to salvation, for God is not unjust. And praise God for this. God is not unjust even though we don't understand even though this this passage seems very difficult for us to understand know that if it's impossible that God is doing it as a just God a just and merciful God and let us rest in that justness of God and that justice of God and we desire each one of you Oh, wait, for, for God is not unjust so as to overlook what your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. The blessings fell upon these Hebrews and, and the work was being cultivated, became a blessing. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, the same diligence, the same perseverance to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Remember, they were, they were looking at oncoming persecution. Keep that in the back of your head as you're reading the, this letter. They were, they were looking at oncoming persecution, oncoming trouble and suffering. That you may have the full assurance of hope until the end. Why? So that you may not be sluggish, no thrust, so that you may not be dull of hearing. There's this little bookends on each side of this, at five, I think it's 5.11 and 6.12, so that you may not be slow of hearing, but that you may be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That is our prayer for you, Hebrews. That is the prayer, that you may be imitators of those who by faith and patience inherit these great promises. These great promises that, that, that Abraham, he'll go on to talk about this. Dave will preach on this next week. The promise made to Abraham. He says, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained that promise. 
Then he says this, in, 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 as he goes on in verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things of which it's impo- impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor. I'm glad we sang that song this morning. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Amen. Amen. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Christ, our sure and steady anchor. He's our only hope, our only foundation in the midst of the storm. Brothers and sisters, no matter what the storm is this morning, this author here, the word of God is calling us to stand firm on that foundation, to hold to the sure and steady anchor. Christ, our sure and steady anchor, the only one who has shed his blood for you and for me, for the forgiveness of sins and for the security of eternal life. Let us hold fast to him today and always. Jesus, help us. Help us to stand firm on you, our only foundation and the work that you accomplished for us. And help us to rejoice in that, that we may encourage one another to good deeds and share in the benefits and the blessings that you have won for us when you conquered death on the cross. We thank you for that. It's in Christ's name. Amen.